Please turn, <clears throat> turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Hear the word of God. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ." Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. It is our uh, desire to live in terms of it. I pray that you would open up the understandings of our minds and uh, that we might uh, not only understand it, but love it and live it. And Father, we give you the glory uh, for uh, this word that you are bringing, for our sanctification, for our good. And I pray, Father, that you would anoint my lips and anoint each one here as they hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. The last time I used this uh, illustration, I got the wrong author, and uh, Jane Collin very graciously corrected me. And I don't know why I got the, uh, the, the author wrong. It may be because I didn't want it to be Mark Twain. But uh, Mark Twain wrote a book called The Prince and the Pauper. And if you haven't read that story, it's kind of a fun story. And uh, in there, you've got a, a young boy who is a pauper, Tom, Tom Canty, and uh, lives in abject poverty, and he is abused. He's uh, beaten for uh, almost no cause. His father is a, a drunkard and a thief and ends up being a murderer as well. You also have another boy who was a prince, Prince Edward, and his father is dying, and he is uh, being groomed to take the throne after his father uh, passes away. And one night, the prince was out walking, uh, and he noticed that the guards were, you know, kind of mistreating this uh, street urchin, and so he intervened and thought it would be fun to play with him. And calls the street urchin in, and, and they play. He calls him up to the palace, and then he says, hey, it'd be cool. I've only been a prince all my life. It'd be cool to wear your clothes for a while. And so they change garments, 
And this Tom Canty is very nervous about this the whole time, uh, does not think this is quite proper, but hey, who's to disagree with the prince? And so they're playing in the other garments. He's smeared black on his face from the fireplace, I think it was. And uh, while he's out chasing his dog, the guard catches him and throws him out thinking he's the beggar. And he, you know, persists in saying that he is, you know, Prince Edward. And so they trounce him for his insolence. And he's out wandering around uh, trying to get back to the, uh, the palace. And at the end... He claims his rights as king by telling them where they can find the royal seal. And uh, kind of a fun story, but Scripture presents a very similar description for us. In Genesis 1 through 2, Psalm 8 and other passages like that, it indicated that all things were placed under man's dominion. And yet in Adam, all of that was lost. Adam could very easily have evicted Satan out of the Garden of Eden, but instead he got evicted. He could very easily have taken dominion over sin, but instead sin took dominion over him. Um, uh, he finds that, that uh, uh, even the earth is cursed. Uh, he's supposed to take dominion over the earth, but he says, to the earth, to the dust, you will return. And so the irony is that the dust is taking dominion over Adam rather than Adam taking dominion uh, over the earth. And by the way, that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, why our bodies need to be resurrected, because everything that the curse affected is reversed by Christ's grace, including uh, the dust taking dominion over our bodies. But that's the first part of verse 17, and this whole sermon is going to revolve around uh, uh, four phrases in verse 17. He says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one... Adam was supposed to reign, and now death reigns over him. Um, Satan reigns over him. Dust reigns over him. Uh, sin reigns over him. It says that sin reigned in death. Uh, Paul says even circumstances get the better of people, and so Adam turns from being a prince to being a pauper. Now, in Christ, that is all changed in verse 17 because it goes on to say much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's resurrection, because he has conquered death, because he has reversed this Prince Popper tragedy that goes on, he says every one of us can be enabled in this life uh, to be reigning. He overthrows everything that overthrew Adam's dominion. Uh, for example, God told Cain, if you do not do well... Sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. He told Cain he was supposed to rule over sin. And um, in Christ, we have that ability. Outside of Christ, we don't. And yet we often walk around uh, as if we don't have resources, as if we are like the pauper. We look like a pauper. We act like a pauper. We feel like a pauper. Maybe some of you smell like the pauper. But by all rights, we are supposed to be kings. We are supposed to be those who have inherited uh, everything in Christ. Listen to this verse. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. He has made us right now to be kings and priests in Christ. And so those who have put their trust in Jesus, they're treated as having legally died with Christ, legally having risen with Him, legally being ascended to the right hand of the Father, were seated with Him there. 
so that Ephesians says, and raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so verse 17 is describing something that is our legal right. We have the authority to walk in this right. Beck translates it this way. We live and reign like kings through the one Jesus Christ. It's in the present tense. We live and reign like kings. Phillips paraphrases it this way. Should live all their lives like kings. Amplified Bible. Shall reign as kings in life. And so it's a a tremendous picture. And yet Christians who read that many times are discouraged because they say, boy, it sure doesn't feel like it. Uh, You know, I'm constantly finding that lust reigns over me instead of me reigning over it. I find that there are circumstances in my life that get the better of me. Gluttony and materialism and fears and the taunts and the persecutions of others, they are the things that seem to be controlling and ruling my life. I don't seem like I'm in control, so what's going on here? Paul indicates that there's a reason for that, and that is because there are two dynasties that are in competition for your life. Uh, Elsewhere in the scripture, they're described as the first Adam and the second Adam, or Adam in Christ, or the old man and the new man. The old man is our old identity with Adam and the pull that Adam has upon our life. See, we're genetically connected to Adam. Your bodies come from Adam. Your souls come from Adam. Um, uh, Your uh, legal status before you were a Christian came from Adam. That's been changed already. But uh, you find in Adam your strength, you find in him your weaknesses, and they have a pull upon your life. And uh, that's one of the things that leads us, into, uh, leads us into sin. But when God regenerated you, he gave you a new spirit. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And eventually we'll be given a new body on resurrection day so that every vestige of that connection with the old Adam will be broken. But in the meantime, until resurrection day, we still are connected in some way. We have the old man. We have the old nature. We have the connections to Adam. Uh, And praise the Lord, we also have connections to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got a new identity, a new legal status, a new nature, and a new power. And Jesus is in the process of making all things new. And so there's two dynasties that are in competition for your life that are constantly pulling back and forth. And it speaks in the scripture of there being a fight, a tug of war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, tugging back and forth uh, within us. And it's important to realize that when Paul speaks of being the new man, that is our new identity in Christ and the pull that Christ exerts on our life. And I think Mark Twain illustrates this so well. When the prince, uh, he didn't intend to, (laughs) but uh, I think it's a great illustration. When the prince identified with the beggar's life, he put on, you know, this uh, black soot and he put on the clothes he began to be treated like a beggar. He lost his power, he lost his authority, and he came into the hardship and the bondage of a beggar. But when he went to the palace and he demanded to be placed upon the throne and he was able to convince them that he was the king and he was able to show them where the royal seal was, uh, then everything changed around. And Paul commands us to produce the royal seal of faith and to appropriate what is ours. Our whole life is to be a life of faith. Uh, When we live in bondage to sin, Paul commands us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body 
that you should obey it in its lust. He says, don't take, don't take orders from your flesh. Your flesh is telling you, do this, you know, sleep in. They're telling you to do things that you previously had not wanted to do, you hadn't planned to do. And so you just are, are, are being constantly told and commanded and ordered around by your flesh. And he says, you don't have to take orders from the flesh. Do not let it rain. It's not king. God has put a different uh, person into your life as king. Now, what kind of resources do we have in Christ? Whose pull is stronger? Is it the old man or is it the new man? Is it our old identity with Adam or our new identity with Christ? Well, we might be tempted initially to think that it is our old identity with Adam, our old nature, because man alive, sometimes the pull of the flesh is so strong, especially when we're newly converted. It's like, how in the world do you guys do this? Uh, how, do you, uh, how are you able to conquer uh, your sins? Look at verse 20, last sentence. But where sin abounded, so he's not denying that sin can have a powerful pull upon us or that it abounds, but he says where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Not just more, grace abounded much more, right? Your temptations may seem overwhelming to you, where you just, you feel like you can't help it. Well, Romans 7 describes that frustrating experience in Romans 7, verse 15, that what I hate, that I do. One of the books I would really strongly encourage you guys to read is a book uh, um, um, Kurt Knight uh, sold me a couple of weeks ago. I'm almost finished with it. And it's by Chris Lungard. It's called The Enemy Within. And I think that's just a masterful treatment of uh, what it means to war against our flesh and gives us hope in terms of our, uh, the process and the remedy for overcoming our flesh. It's called The Enemy Within. It's a quick read. I would have recommended John Owen's uh, big mammoth book, but I know none of you would read that. So <laughs> Lungard is the way to go, okay? And uh, highly recommend it. But anyway, verse 17 doesn't just talk about a small taste of our kingship that we can experience. It speaks of overflowing, having more than we need, uh, overflowing in our lives, greater uh, than Satan's grip on our lives. Chapter 5, verse 17 again. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, now get this phrase, much more... So Christ doesn't just barely give you enough grace to get by. It might feel like it sometimes. But no, he gives you much more... Those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So we need not be pauper kings. We are fabulously wealthy. According to Christ, he has blessed us with everything that we need. In fact, the word abundance there means leftover. There's an overflow. There's more than what you could use. When we find ourselves in bondage to some sin or to some addiction or something like that, it's not because God has held out on you and you don't have enough resources or enough grace. Uh, he says, you've got plenty of resources. You have all that we need. You need. Romans 8.32, we are more than conquerors. Now, it'd be cool if he could just say, we're conquerors. But he says, no, it goes beyond that. We're more than conquerors. Um, Ephesians 1.3, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Second Peter tells us he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we are not paupers. 
Okay, we are kings. We have a new identity. We have new resources in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can take hope. But the person might come along and say, but then how come I'm struggling so much? How come I can't find the victory? I keep trying and trying and trying. And at the end of the sermon, we might, we'll, we'll be looking at three factors that may be in place in, in your life or may be missing in your life that are causing you to fail. Uh, first of all, uh, many times we are not driven by knowledge of who we are like we should be. We have not studied the scriptures like we should uh, uh, study them. And so when Satan puts doubts into our mind or other people tell us that we're not the king, we believe him. You know, we just give up in discouragement. We're not driven by that knowledge. Uh, secondly, we have not exchanged our identity by taking our rags off and so our rags make us feel like paupers. We have a hard time believing that we are what God says that we are, and so there's the faith issue. And then thirdly, we submit to the wrong authorities and the, the wrong powers and the wrong influences in our life. But for right now, I think it's just important to realize it is possible for believers to have fabulous wealth, be blessed with everything, and yet to live like paupers. Very, very possible. I read a story of the wealthiest... Uh, people in America, and um, uh, one of them was a lady uh, by the name of Mrs. Hetty Green, who was the wealthiest woman up to that time. And I, have I mentioned this one before, Mrs. Hetty Green? Okay, uh, a remarkable woman in terms of her savvy in the business world, uh, very remarkable. In 1916, she left an estate of $95 million, which in 1916 was a pile of loot, you know. Um, brilliant financier, uh, brilliant in the uh, stock markets and, and bonds, uh, especially those were her areas of specialty. And um, she was making, on the average, $500 an hour, 24 hours a day, uh, just from the loans that she was lending out to people. She'd lend out, you know, a city would want, you know, one and a half million dollars to do something, and she'd lend it to them at 6% interest. And she was really um, uh, pu pulling the stuff in. So she was fabulously wealthy, brilliant at making money, and yet she lived like a pauper all her life. She made her kids live like paupers all their lives. Uh, the, the food they ate was disgusting. Uh, she made her kids live, uh, you know, wear these clothes that were worn out, old, old clothes. And um, she wore her dress, uh, I, I forget how many years it was before she finally changed it. It was a 25, 30 years, I forget. Um, she just didn't believe in, in spending any money. When her son broke his leg, uh, sledding uh, in a sledding accident. Uh, she tried to fix it herself, and it got worse and worse, so she took her to the, him to the hospital. Anytime she went to the hospital, she dressed in rags to get sympathy uh, so she wouldn't have to pay the money. Well, this doctor, after looking at them, thought, okay, well, they're poor. I'll charge them just a minimal fee. But because he, it was just a fraction of what he ordinarily charged, because he charged anything, she took her son elsewhere, trying to find free care, he ended up getting gangrene, having to have his leg amputated just because of her ridiculous obsession with not, not spending money. Um, one time she was on a bus, and she had money with her, but she didn't have a nickel because it cost a nickel to, to ride the bus, and so she bummed the nickel off of the... The, the, the driver of the bus said she'd pay him back, and he was a little hesitant. She said, I'm good for my debts. 
And uh, so he gave her a nickel, and the next day she went to the bus station, put her nickel down. She would not let her thumb off that nickel till he gave her a receipt that she'd paid her back. <laughs> he'd paid her back, yeah. <laughs> that was the kind of lady she was. On her deathbed, they, you know, took her clothes off and washed her and everything, and they discovered she had, in order to save money, had been sewing had been sewing uh, newspapers together for underskirts to keep herself warm. So here's a brilliant woman. Everybody said she was incredibly brilliant in making money. But boy, what a strange, strange woman when it came to living like a pauper. Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, you guys are strange, strange Christians if you do not use the grace of the Lord to deal with your sins. He says, what's the matter with you? that you continue in sin, that grace may abound. He says that's not the way we should be thinking. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue to wear newspaper slips and undergarments so that, 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 that our grace may abound, our money can multiply? And he says, no, Mrs. Hetty Green, that's ridiculous. That's not the way that money should be used. And Mrs. Hetty Green would say right back to you now, you know, by way of Proverbs, she'd say, no, Phil Kaiser, you know, no, Tom, no, <laughs> Kurt, do not sin that grace may abound. The purpose of grace is to help us to conquer our sins, to get us out of the poverty of constantly living in a state of sin. So that's the purpose that the Lord has given to us. We have resources needed to reign in life. And even though there's the pull of the old man, and sometimes we feel it ever so strongly, he says the pull of the new man, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is greater. And if you will but side with them and forget what your wants and desires are, do what is right, you're going to enter into the joy of the Lord. It will be worthwhile. And so that, too, is an encouraging point. But let's look at what Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension on our behalf enables us to reign over. Verse 17 just simply says that we reign. It doesn't say what we reign over. So I want to just amplify on that a little bit and look at some of the things that uh, when we were raised with Christ to be seated with Him in the heavenlies, the kind of authority He has given to reign over various things. First of all, we are enabled to reign over sin. Now, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, He told Cain that Cain should reign over it, over sin. And that's what he tells us in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 14 as well. He says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now earlier, Paul had given the law's demand. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This is not a command. This is a promise. This is saying there's no need to allow, reign to, to, to allow sin to reign. Sin shall not have dominion over you. I'm sanctifying you. I am perfecting you over the course of your life, and one day you're going to be forever removed from every vestige of, of sin. And again, I would encourage you to buy Chris Lungard's um, uh, book. But look at Romans 8. Romans 8 gives a whole litany of things that, that uh, we have been called to triumph over by God's grace, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's saying, you know, when you think about it, Satan can't reign over you. He doesn't have the authority unless you let him. He doesn't have the authority to get the better of you. The enemies who are abusing you, who are throwing taunts at you, who are persecuting you, 
you know, they may be able to take things away from you. They may be able to bust things up. They may be able to even destroy your body, but they cannot rule over your spirit unless you let them rule over your spirit. If God is for you, who can be against you? There is no way anybody can triumph over you unless you let them dominate you. Okay, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then he brings some of the things that come against us, and uh, he lists uh, in that uh, section there tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And then in verse 37... He says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you feel like your circumstances are ruling over you or do you rule over your circumstances? Do you rule over time or does time rule over you? Uh, Many people treat time as if it's an enemy. You know, it's just like, time's always against me. I never can get anything done that I want to get done. Time's not against you. God has made all circumstances to be your friend. Everything in life is working together for your good. That means this whole universe is one of the tools that God is using to sanctify you, to enable you to do what God has called you to do. And so nothing can come against you. No matter how badly things went for Christ, he never lost control. Look at Romans 8, verse 15. This is another thing. He's given us resources to rule over. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. For many Christians, they are ruled by fear. The phobias that beset them, and they feel in bondage to this fear. He says the Spirit can enable us to completely conquer those fears. And I've helped people. There's step-by-step process that the Scripture gives so you can be rid of fears and enter into the confidence and the the, the boldness that the Lord has called us to have. Now, I'm not going to, in this sermon, deal with any of the steps for these things. That would take us three or four hours, you know, to go through for each one of these what the steps are. What I'm trying to do this morning is to give you hope and say, hey, I'm going to keep on keeping on because I know that Scripture says I can do it. I can lick this. I can reign in life. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. Perhaps some of you are ruled by your bodies. Every time your body says, feed me, you obey it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you feed your body. Uh, every time, you know, you're, you're really wanting to be lazy, and you know you shouldn't, but you're wanting to be lazy, you just obey your flesh. You do whatever it wants you to do. And uh, Paul says you can reser- reverse this order where the body is no longer ruling the spirit, but the spirit is ruling over the body. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. But I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection. That's ruling over it, right? I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What did Jesus raise you to be? Paupers, he raised you to be kings, people who rule over your bodies, who rule in your homes, who rule in your business, who rule over the things of this life. Circumstances should not take uh, control of you. You need to be taking control by God's grace. And uh, if we don't master this, there's no way we're going to be dominionists in this life, right? Taking dominion over every area of life. We can't do it. We've got to take dominion over ourselves before we can do it uh, over the things God brings to us. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13. 
there are perfectly good things in this world that the Lord gives to us. He wants us to enjoy the good things of life. But he says, if you don't watch it, those good things can take control of you. For example, um, nothing wrong with uh, uh, drinking wine. Uh, The scripture talks about that. But the abuse of wine, if you cannot control yourself, it's better not to drink at all. Okay? So, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 and following, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any or of anything. And then he goes on to talk about some of the things people are brought under the power of. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, you know. And then he talks about food becoming an idol, where it begins to rule in our lives. And he talks about sexuality later on, verses uh, 15, 16, uh, and following. And so it could be as simple as gluttony. It could be something like... Uh, you know, computer games governing our lives. It could be television. You know, the amount of television that Christians in America watch, I am convinced that this is usurping their rule. It is taking away and robbing their ability to take dominion in the things God says are their responsibility to be taking dominion over. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with television. There's nothing wrong. Well, there is lots wrong with television, but there's nothing in the theoretical wrong with being entertained, right? what is wrong is where it begins to dictate. We come home tired and we just slouch down on the the sofa and say, I don't know what to do. And you start flipping the channels. Before you know it, you've watched four or five hours of TV. You didn't plan that ahead. You need to plan ahead. Okay, this week I want to have so many hours of entertainment and what would be the best entertainment that I can get for my buck, you know, for the amount of time that I'm spending? Okay, this show I'm going to watch, this sports event I'm going to watch, and you plan it. When you plan it, you are ruling. You are reigning. And so there's nothing wrong with the entertainment. Where the problem comes is where people can't control it. They let things happen to them rather than uh, being the cause of things happening. Now, Second Peter 2.19 describes unbelievers as slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And I've read all of those scriptures so that you can say, well, I guess there really isn't any excuse for any area in which I'm failing to reign. God calls us to reign in absolutely every area of life. And you might say, ah, but I've got something because I have a right to be bitter because of the incredible bad things that these people have done to me. And I can't really help it that I am, I am bitter in, in this area. And um, Paul says in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He is saying, use your resources as a king. In fact, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter of Romans chapter 12. If you have problems with malice, with bitterness, with anger, with desires for revenge, with brooding, boy, he gives a whole list of things that you can begin to do and you're going to immediately find a change in your life where instead of feeling like you're the poor victim who is in slavery and in in manipulation of this other person, you feel that you're in control. They can't do a thing to you. They cannot get you bitter. They cannot get you angry. Uh, They just make fools of themselves the harder that they try. And so I encourage you to read uh, Romans chapter 12. Well, back to our launching off pad in Romans 5.17, there is another point that this brings up, and that is that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can do this reigning. 
Uh, Romans 5.17, right in the middle there, or right at the end, it says, who will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. We reign through the one Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about, you know, trying to grip ourselves and with self-discipline, you know, doing it in our own strength. We're talking about receiving resources for the Lord Jesus Christ for what we do. Ephesians says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's where they are. He's our bank. We need to write the checks off of his bank, right? Not off of our own. If we look within, we're not going to have the strength because Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. So you got to look outside if there's no good thing that dwells within us. And so it's possessed in Christ, point B, it's possessed in abundance. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Abundance. He's freely giving us all things? Is that a hyperbole? Well, listen to 1 Corinthians 3.21-23. through 23. All things are yours, whether Paul, ooh, so Paul belongs to you, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, The world belongs to you, or life, or death, or things present. And how does death belonging to you help? Well, actually, there's huge implications to even that belonging to you. But he says, are things present or things to come? All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We do not have to wait till the second coming for circumstances to be working together for our good, is basically what he is saying. Um. Uh, we, we, we can have those circumstances serving us instead of fighting against us. And yet frequently we get so frustrated. We want to kick the cat or the tire or something because circumstances are against us. And he says, no, don't view it that way. All things are yours. I have guaranteed that your circumstances are molding you into the image of Christ. I don't want to be molded into the image of Christ right now, you might think. And, and God's saying... Yeah, I know you don't, and that's why I'm keeping on this, you know. Uh, Until we break your spirit, until we get you to a place where you love righteousness, you hunger for righteousness, and you're willing to suppress that old flesh, uh, he's going to keep doing that. And then point C, they surpass the resources that Satan has at his disposal. Again, verse 17, he says, uh, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And that phrase much more occurs five times in this chapter. Very encouraging phrase. And so this point assures us we have all the resources we need. Then finally, there's a hint of how we start to reign as kings. Again, back to 517. <clears throat> it says, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign. Those who receive will reign. Okay, so there's a receiving that needs to take place. And that starts right off the bat when we become Christians. We have to cast our self-efforts as well as our sins at the cross of Christ and say these things are useless. Uh, They are rubbish. And we need to receive from Christ His legal imputed righteousness which justifies us, and from that point on, we are secure in being, realizing we cannot be condemned in court. We also, at that point, receive his imparted righteousness, that's sanctification, and then some people just stop right there. And Galatians 3 says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? 
He says, that's ridiculous. Our whole lives, we are being made perfect uh, through the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to receive it from him. And according to uh, Romans 5.17, those who receive will reign and no one else. If you don't receive, you won't reign. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That receiving and that reigning, those belong uh, together. And so if you ask, how come some people, some Christians are spiritual giants and others are spiritual pygmies? It's simply because some are receivers and others have ignored the vast resources that God has purchased for them. You can't blame it on God. You can't blame it on anything else. It's because you haven't been receivers. Now, people say, well, how do we receive? There's three, th three points that uh, I would give to you in how we receive from the Lord. First of all, it involves knowing. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, do you not know? And then he tells us some stuff that we need to know if we're going to find victory in Christ. Then in verse 6, he says, knowing this, and he tells us more stuff that we need to know. And then verse 9, he says, knowing, and he tells us more stuff we need to know. See, one of the problems with Christians is we don't know doctrine. We don't know what God describes of our heart. We don't know the things he has called us to do. And so, of course, we're going to have problems because we're not following his blueprints. I read of a Texas farmer who was about to be evicted from his land because he couldn't pay his taxes. Uh, very poor. But an oil company uh, showed up in his property and said that they thought that there was oil there and they wanted permission to drill. And they signed a contract with him and overnight he became a multimillionaire. It was the biggest oil field in Texas. Actually, I think in the United States, it was a, at that time, it was a hugely producing uh, oil field. Now, the question is, did he own that oil before he knew it or after he knew it? We'd have to say, well, he owned it, but it didn't do him much good, did it? Didn't do him much good until he knew that he owned it. They needed to be tapped. They needed to be exploited. And until your life is driven by knowledge, it is irrelevant. Now, in the prince and the pauper, nobody believed this prince that he was really Prince Edward. They just thought he was a little bit nuts. And even Miles Hendon didn't believe him, but he accommodated this guy because he felt sorry for him. But it didn't matter. This prince was driven by his knowledge, and he was not going to sit down until he had accomplished what he knew his knowledge spoke about him. And in the same way, we have got to be driven by the, what the scriptures say about us. It doesn't matter what other people say. We need to be driven by the knowledge of the word. Secondly, you must reckon by faith what is yours to be so. Romans 6.11 says, Reckon yourselves or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, reckoning is taking the doctrine and making it ours, or it's God signed a, bl a blank check and it's filling in the check. Okay, $500,000, you know, and it's, it's claiming the things that we need. Now, if you don't need 500000 God might not deliver, but uh, <laughs> signing the blank check of what you need and the Lord has given to you. And the poor farmer, he could have taken off, said, boy, it's too bad that the oil company's getting all the oil and they're so rich and I'm just a poor farmer. And he could have just even failed to sign his checks, right? Endorse his checks and to cash them. And so faith possesses it. And then thirdly, you receive by putting yourself at God's disposal. Now, if you stiff arm God at certain places of your life and you say, oh yeah, I'm going to be receptive to what God says over here, but no, no, don't touch this part of my life, Lord. You're not receiving and you will not be reigning. 
You might have a superficial uh, appearance of reigning, just like the Pharisees did, but you will not be reigning by God's grace because you cannot stiff-arm God in one part and take Him in another part. You either receive Him or you don't. You're either submitting to Him or you are not submitting to Him. And so let's start reading at chapter 6, verse 13. He says, and do not present, and let me just give you the definition of that word present. It's, uh, it's a paristemi is the Greek word, and it literally means to yield, to offer yourself, to put yourself at someone's disposal, to surrender, or to submit. Okay, those are all great translations, uh, all the definitions from the dictionary. So he says here, do not submit or present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present or submit or surrender yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present or surrender or submit yourselves, slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. He says, when you give in, it gets worse. It gets harder and harder to resist. The moment you give in to sin, you become a slave to that sin. And after a while, you're constantly taking orders from it. Anyway, going on, he says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented or submitted or surrendered your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present or surrender or submit or yield or put at the disposal your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Now that third component we're talking about, yieldedness, submissiveness, some people just call it prudence. It is the willingness to have God, to, you know, to sign a check, say, God, you just put in there whatever you want. I'll deliver. You tell me what to do. Anytime I'm reading the devotions, you convict me of a sin. I don't care how weird people think I'm going to be. I'm going to follow it. That is prudence. That is yieldedness to the Lord. And uh, when we do that, he, he comes through. He gives us the grace to reign. When was it that the man with the withered hand was healed it was when he yielded to the command. And it was an impossible command, stretch forth your hand. It was in the act of attempting the impossible in obedience to God that God came through. When did the Israelites have the Jordan River parted for them? They could have just waited around and said, Oh God, you've got to do a miracle. You've got to part the river for me before I can cross over. And you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. God says, Do it. Do it. I'm commanding you to do it. I'm not saying wait around till I do it for you. And so it was at the moment that their feet touched the waters that, boom, the waters were parted. The same is true of our walking in the Spirit, walking in the commandments of God. Every step feels like, you know, I'm going to sink. I'm going to go through. And God says, take me at my word. You need to walk in the Spirit, doing the things that I command you, and I will part the ways before you. I will enable you. I will empower you. When you try it in your own strength because you're fearful, oh, God won't come through, so I'm going to try real hard to do this righteousness. I'm going to build a bridge across. I don't want to walk across. And God says, forget it. You try it in your strength, I'll let you wear yourself out for a couple of years. And when you're absolutely broken and tired of doing it yourself, come back and we'll try it again. And I'll have you do the same thing I had you do this year. I'm going to have you step in the water. And when you keep stepping, you're going to be finding your faith just soars. You find God comes through. And you're just walking and you're running. And, 
and, and it's such an exciting life. You begin to experience what it means to reign in his power. Now, this morning, if you do not have what Romans says should be yours, if you're still begging like a pauper instead of living like a king, then ask yourself which of these last three things we talked about is missing from your life. If you simply don't know enough about sanctification to know what the blueprints are, then study. You can start with uh, Lundgren's, but that's a general uh, treatise. And then there's specific books that deal with various areas uh, of sin in your life. If you can get over it quick, that's fine. But some people have been so habituated, they have to work through a lot of homework. Study. If you are missing out, your problem is reckoning what the Bible says to be true for you, then you need to develop your faith. It's as simple as that. And there are books that teach you, again, how to develop your faith, how to walk in faith. If your problem is with the submission part, that you're doing wrong simply because you don't want to do what's right, your flesh is rebelling against it, then what you need to do, okay, put your flesh to death. Crucify it. That's what the Bible commands us to do. And there's a process by which we can put that flesh to death. Now, initially, it just screams out, it cries out. But after a while, it begins to quieten, and you're starving it to death. And pretty soon, you find that flesh is just lying on the ground. You know, it's not doing anything. It's easy, then, to walk forward. But if you ignore it, and you're not perpetually crucifying that flesh, boy, it revives very quickly. And it comes back, and it fights against you. I read about how modern engravers are able to do such detailed work in granite rock. Now, there may be other ways that they do this, but nowadays with sandblasting, and I wondered, well, how does the sandblasting work without spreading out? And um, there may be other techniques, but the one technique that uh, I saw was they coated the granite block in rubber, and then they would put a pattern on it, and they would uh, draw the pattern out, and then they would cut the places out that needed to be engraved, and then they would sandblast away with this uh, high-pressure uh, stream of sand. And because the rubber had bounced to it, it didn't affect the rubber at all. It just bounced right off. Whereas the granite, which was stiff and unresisting, it was immediately beginning to be worn down and engraved. Well, in the same way, it's people who are stubborn resistors to God's Spirit who find it so quickly, that they get worn out much more quickly than those who are resilient. And they're saying, yes, Lord, I am yielded to you. If you want to take away my things, that's fine. Everything I've given is yours anyway, Lord, so it's not being taken away from me. Uh, when we are yielded to the Lord, we find that we do not have near the troubles and the difficulties, even though we're going through the same circumstances, the same sandblasting as those who are hard-headed and resist and who cry and mope around and God says, get over it, get over it. You're going to get sandblasted one way or another. But when you get your heart where it is rubber and it is resilient, it's not going to fade. The victory that we have in Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Father, I have had such a thick head in the past that uh, it's taken me so long to learn uh, some of these things. I've wanted it to do it my own way. And, uh, Father, it's been nothing but pain and frustration. Thank you, Father, that you've gotten through in my life. Thank you that you can get through in each one of our lives. Thank you, Father, for your promise that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your awesome work of sanctification. Sanctify us, your people, and cause us to rise on wings, uh, the wings of your grace, to reign and not to be brought under the bondage of other people, other things, of sin, or whatever it is in this creation that has been troubling us. Help these people to find the victory through Christ Jesus, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>